Brina Garen, and you're listening to Hex Positive. Welcome, witches. This is episode 23 of Hex Positive. I'm your host, Brina Garen, and I hope you all had a safe and gloriously witchy Samhain. I know I'm not ready for spooky season to be over quite yet, and I can't help but notice that y'all are really enjoying these history of type episodes. So this month, I decided to keep things going by delving into the origins of a certain popular board game. Yes, it's the denizen of a thousand sleepovers and countless horror movies and television programs, The Ouija Board. We touched on this topic in October of 2020 in the Things That Go Bump series, but didn't really get into the details. As I was doing the research for this episode, it really surprised me just how much of what we think we know about Ouija boards comes directly from pop culture media, and in particular from some very non-witchy and even anti-witchcraft sources. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we get started, I just want to let my listeners in Virginia know that I will have a table at the Fall New Moon Festival at Selden Marketplace in Norfolk on Saturday, November 6th. I'll be bringing books and witch kits and all kinds of goodies, so if you're in the area, please do stop by. Also, if anyone out there is interested in featuring my work in a book club, big or small, or carrying my books in your witchy establishment, whether it's brick and mortar or online, feel free to DM me on any of my social media sites. I'm working on putting together a sponsor list for upcoming months as well, so if you'd like your witchy or witchcraft-adjacent business featured on the podcast, please do get in touch with me. I'll be linking all of this in the show notes. So, Ouija boards. What do we know about Ouija boards? If you were asked to rattle off five facts about them, just off the top of your head. You might mention things like the setup and the general appearance of the board with the letters and the numbers and hello and goodbye, maybe the planchette, or you might mention how it's used as a conduit for spirit communication, or the allegedly ancient origins of the board, or some of its appearances in movies and television. If you're more familiar with the game, you might mention some of the associated rules, like always moving the planchette to goodbye to end a session, or never playing it alone, or how you shouldn't use the board if you're not experienced with spirit work because of the risk of summoning something nasty. And of course, the Christians in the room might say something about demons and all the malevolent hauntings allegedly associated with, or even caused by, meddling with these strange and mysterious boards. Here's where I make people angry. Most of this is complete bullshit. Well, actually, no, let's be a little bit nicer about that. Most of this is modern invention. 
And while some of it may certainly have merit, Ouija is by no means an ancient game, nor is it an open portal to hell, as some sources would have you believe. As I mentioned, most of what we think we know about Ouija comes from pop culture. And while that is not the most reliable source in the world, there is a certain amount of credit to be given to the modern zeitgeist and the effect that changing attitudes about spirituality and magic have had on the lore associated with talking boards and spirit communication. So the Ouija board as we know it first came into existence during the latter part of the 1800s as one of the many tools of the spiritualist movement. This was a period in American history where people were getting really curious about mysticism and the afterlife. And it wasn't just here, it was happening in Europe as well. You may have heard of people like Hans Mesmer and the Fox sisters. They were all part of this. And because so much of spiritualism was tied in with Christian beliefs about heaven and angels and so on, people weren't seeing this afterlife communication as anything evil or sinful, and they certainly weren't seeing it as witchcraft or magic. This, according to the rhetoric of the times, was the merging of religion and science to create a new kind of enlightenment. It should come as no surprise that the popularity of afterlife communication boomed in the aftermath of the American Civil War. We will see this about a century later, following the Vietnam conflict. Around this time, 1860s and 70s, mediums were relying on things like table tipping, automatic writing, rapping, that's knocking, not freestyling, trances, and so on, to provide spirit communication to their clients. But a lot of these methods were kind of slow. For instance, you might have to keep cycling through the alphabet over and over while a spirit indicated letters to spell out a message. People were getting used to much faster long-distance communication via telegrams and such by this point, so it's no surprise that there was a desire to find a method for faster spirit communication as well. Now, we're not sure who had the very first talking board of this kind, but we do know that planchette-based automatic writing existed as far back as the Song Dynasty in China, and, during the rise of the spiritualist movement, there was a concurrent interest in Eastern philosophy and mysticism. So, it's entirely possible that someone was reading about Taoism, found this reference to a talking board, and decided to make their own version with the letters and numbers that were familiar to them. That's just a theory. I don't actually have anything concrete to back it up, but it seems like it's well within the realm of possibility. It's also possible that somebody took inspiration from the various dowsing methods that were popular at the time and married that to the spelling out of messages to create the first board. We just don't know. What we do know is that by 1886, talking boards were so popular in spiritualism circles that they were beginning to edge out other methods of spirit communication. 
And if we know anything about the American spirit of capitalism, it's that the second something gets popular, somebody's going to find a way to make a buck off of it. Which is precisely what happened. In 1890, a businessman by the name of Charles Kennard assembled a handful of investors to launch the Kennard Novelty Company, specifically to patent, manufacture, and market these talking boards. None of the men involved were spiritualists themselves, or particularly interested in spiritualism, but they knew a money-making opportunity when they saw one. They just needed a name, something mystical, something catchy, something they could turn into a household brand. Now, the popular theory holds that Ouija is a combination of the French and German words for yes. But according to research conducted by historian Robert Murch, the name came from the board itself. Kennard and his investors held a seance conducted by Helen Peters, the sister-in-law of one of the party, Elijah Bond. And during the session, the word Ouija was spelled out in answer to a question concerning what they should call their new product. When the party inquired what the word meant, the board replied, good luck. Early advertising for Ouija boards includes this claim, assigning ancient Egyptian origin to the word. Is there evidence for this? No, there is not. But Egyptomania has a long shelf life. It is interesting to note, however, that surviving letters written by the attendees note that Ms. Peters was wearing a necklace bearing the image of famous author and women's rights activist Ouida during the session. Her name is spelled O-U-I-D-A. So maybe the word was an unconscious idea or a misreading of that by one of the participants. We don't know. Whatever the origin, the talking board now had a name, and it was time to get to work. Elijah Bond filed for a patent on a talking board and accompanying planchette. It was basically the same design as we can see on most commercially available boards today. The alphabet, the numbers 0 through 9, yes and no in the top corners, goodbye at the bottom, and some ornate designs to make it look fancy. Plus the teardrop-shaped planchette. Of course, back then both pieces were made of wood rather than cardboard and plastic as they are now. There's an interesting story connected with the approval of the patent for the first Ouija board. According to the descendants of the original investors and the patent file itself, the chief patent officer demanded a demonstration. If the board could spell out his name, which I'm assuming the men from Kennard Novelty weren't supposed to know, then he would approve the patent. So they had a session with the board right there in the office, and the planchette did indeed spell out the chief patent officer's name. Whether this was due to actual supernatural intervention or the careful handling of the investors, I'll leave up to you to decide. It's worth noting that the application for the patent makes no effort to describe how or why the board works. It only claims that it does. Either way, the patent was approved in 1891, and Kennard Novelty set to work manufacturing and marketing their new product. As it turned out, they'd struck niche market gold. Within the next five years, they went from one factory in Baltimore, Maryland, to opening multiple new factories in Baltimore, New York, Chicago, and London. It's a really big deal. Even by modern standards, this is like an overnight boom. 
William Fold, one of the people who'd gotten in on the ground floor, eventually took over the company and licensed exclusive rights for the board. This led to some legal battles between him and the other investors who'd been part of that initial group who had sold their shares or tried to come up with similar products. It's a whole big legal snarl we're not going to get into, but eventually Fold won out and he had controlling interest in the company and the rights to the Ouija board moving forward. So now it's the turn of the century. Always a time of change and upheaval, as those of us born in the 20th century can attest. And interest in the Ouija boards boomed. It was a fun parlor game for parties and get-togethers. It was so popular that American artist Norman Rockwell painted a scene with a man and woman using a Ouija board for a May 1920 cover of the Saturday Evening Post. If you don't know who Norman Rockwell is, ask your grandparents. There's an episode of the old sitcom I Love Lucy, my mother's favorite, that features a funny seance using a Ouija board. There are stories circulating of people solving crimes or finding lost objects by using a Ouija board. There are even a number of writers like Pearl Curran and James Merrill who produce entire novels and epic poems which they claim are either directly dictated by Ouija board sessions or inspired by them. So the game has become like a slightly spooky version of bridge. You get together for dinner, you have a glass of bubbly, you bring out the Ouija board. Sure, it's a little creepy. Sometimes you might get something a little weird or foreboding, but mostly it's just a game. In fact, I seem to recall an ad campaign from the 1980s, which repeated over and over, it's just a game. Keep telling yourself, it's just a game. And for the most part, nobody bats an eyelash. Well, almost nobody. See, the church, and when I say church in these contexts, I mean the Roman Catholic Church, has a little problem with, let's say, certain practices. I mean, this should come as absolutely no surprise to any of us who have ever had to deal with cantankerous Christian relatives, but it's also literally in some of the catechism. And one of the practices that the Catholic Church is generally not okay with is... If you said communicating with spirits, you missed the mark. No, no, no. The issue the Church has with Ouija boards is divination. Yeah, because according to their doctrine, if someone finds a way to predict the future or discover hidden information with the help of non-divine supernatural sources... That's bad news bears. Because, you know, knowing the future and seeing what is hidden is supposed to be reserved for divine powers and the gift of prophecy, and so forth. It's a whole thing. Besides that, the original way to use a Ouija board wasn't always to put it on a table and seat people around it. Nope, the party game way to use the board was to have participants sit facing each other, prop the board on their knees, and go from there. You can actually see this portrayed in the Norman Rockwell piece I mentioned earlier. Little bit like taking your date to see a scary movie in the hopes that they might need a squeeze if they get frightened. Which just goes to show that people mixing fun and fear is hardly a modern invention. Anyway, that sort of thing was just way too intimate for early 20th century church people to condone. Sitting face to face with your knees touching? Whatever next, holding hands in public? Scandalous! 
So yes, the church was protesting the use of Ouija boards right from the start, but not because they allegedly opened portals to hell or summoned anything. Nope, Ouija boards were predicting the future and encouraging spooky, sexy feelings. Can't have that. Eventually, the Protestants and the Evangelicals picked up on this after a while and added in their own ideas about spirit communication being evil and dangerous. Oh, Puritanism is alive and well. Of course, none of that stopped the board from being ridiculously popular, especially once it became involved with the counterculture movements in the 1960s. Parker Brothers bought the rights to the board in 1966, and the following year, Ouija boards actually outsold Monopoly, with more than two million boards flying off the shelves. Everybody was having a good time, despite some nervous pearl-clutching from certain religious authorities, and it was quite literally all fun and games. But all of that was about to change. We'll be back with more Hex Positive after this brief sponsored break. This episode is brought to you by Portland Buttonworks. Do you like buttons? Of course you do. Have you ever had a great idea for one, but just been like, darn it, if only I had the resources and equipment? Well, fret no more. Portland Buttonworks is just what you need. Portland Buttonworks creates custom pinback buttons in four different sizes, plus magnets, hand mirrors, and bottle openers. Download their templates and create your own designs, or use their Design-O-Matic for quick formatting. You can order just a few custom items for yourself or as gifts, or order in bulk for merch, table sales, or your own shop. And they are quick! The turnaround time for properly formatted submissions is one to three business days for most orders under 1,000 pieces. That is lightning fast! I've been getting buttons from Portland Buttonworks for years, and their quality is always top of the line. Ever wonder where the hex positive buttons came from? Well, now you know. And once you're done making your buttons, make sure you visit the PBW Witch Shop for a thoughtfully curated selection of witchcraft, magic, and occult-related zines. They've got books, buttons, tarot cards, and more. The collection has a refreshing emphasis on magic that relates to traditional and folkloric witchcraft, chaos magic, secular witchcraft, magical plants and herbs, queer witchcraft, politics and social justice witchcraft, and other non-Wiccan magic. There's a good chance they have exactly what you're looking for. Visit the main Buttonworks at portlandbuttonworks.com and check out the Witch Shop and Zine Distro at pbwwitchshop.com. Help support small business and get your buttons from Portland Buttonworks. Fighting fascism one button at a time since 2012. Since we're all heartily fed up with Amazon right about now, I've decided to open a small online witch shop on my WordPress. You can pick up copies of Grove Daughter Witchery, The Sisters Grimoire, and Pestlework, or shop for witchy goodies like banishing powder, witch web kits, and witchy buttons. You might even get a special surprise or two with your order. Go to brainagarin.wordpress.com shop to place your order today. And now, back to the show. In 1973, amid the growing fears of conservative America over what they saw as the increasingly rebellious and sinful nature of the youth, 
In reality, the natural product of a post-war generation disillusioned with their country and pulling away from the rigid policies and values of the church and their parents, a new horror film premiered in theaters. Based on a book of the same name by William Peter Blatty, itself claiming to be based on a true story, The Exorcist splashed lurid ads across TV, radio, and movie trailers. Viewers were warned that the film could potentially induce everything from fainting to heart attacks to premature labor. A suitably panicked-sounding announcer claimed that ambulances would be waiting outside theaters to assist unfortunate moviegoers, and clips of people claiming to have passed out or gotten sick just from the first 30 minutes were sprinkled throughout. Mind you, all of this advertising was exactly that. Advertising. And it was fairly typical for the time. Gore and transgressive subject matter were the name of the game for 70s horror, and pretty much every other movie claimed to be the most shocking thing you'll ever see. The history of horror movies isn't really a subject for a podcast about modern witchcraft, but wind me up at a party sometime and I'll happily tell you all about it. Back to The Exorcist. If you haven't seen the movie and know nothing about it, the basic plot covers the possession of a young girl named Reagan, played by young actress Linda Blair, and the subsequent efforts of her mother and a pair of priests to save her from this ultimate evil. It's pretty tame by today's standards, but there are some pretty wild special effects and a handful of scenes that, because of the nature of the subject matter and the fact that the main participant is an adolescent girl, are still pretty shocking. For viewers of the time, the very fact that the rite of exorcism, which was previously not widely publicized by the church, was being featured on screen was shocking enough. To say nothing of a chubby-cheeked all-American girl transforming into a grotesque-looking facsimile of her former self and spewing copious amounts of blasphemy and split-pea soup all over the screen. So what does this have to do with Ouija boards? Well, those of you who've seen the movie may recall that an early plot point features Reagan playing with, yep, a Ouija board. She communicates with a spirit she calls Captain Howdy, and things sort of proceed from there. Now, it's never actually said in the movie whether Captain Howdy is meant to just be a mischievous spirit or actually the devil in disguise. But the correlation was there in the minds of the audience nonetheless. What popular culture and religious reactionaries took away from the plot was the blaring headline, Young Girl Possessed by the Devil After Playing with Ouija Board. This detail is mirrored in the book of the same name by William Peter Blatty, which relates a fictionalized story based on the allegedly true events surrounding the exorcism of an anonymous child he calls Roland Doe some years earlier in St. Louis. The boy, a young teenager, had allegedly begun to show signs of alleged possession following his alleged introduction to the board by an aunt, who later passed away and whom he allegedly tried to contact using the board. I say alleged a lot here, and that's very deliberate. There is very little evidence that anything supernatural actually happened in this case. 
In fact, modern researchers looking into the case, such as authors Thomas B. Allen and Mark Opsaysnik, have determined that a lot of the supposed facts associated with the alleged exorcism were falsified or impossible to verify, and that there was really not a lot of evidence that Roland Doe was anything other than either a spoiled brat acting out for attention in ways he knew would most upset the people around him, or a mentally ill child who was subjected to religious rites by his frightened parents rather than receiving proper psychiatric care. The podcast Stuff You Missed in History Class actually just did an episode on this story a little while ago. I'll link to the episode in the show notes so you can go and listen. Basically, the book took what was likely a pretty simple case and added extra details to make it scary and demonic, most of which were based on hearsay. The movie then took this a step further, and because of the impact it had on pop culture, these ideas became gospel. It's kind of like Amityville. Sources on the events are highly unreliable and vary over time, it's kind of an open secret that it was a hoax, that it did not go down the way people said it did, but at the same time, nobody wants to come out and say so. I'll pause for a moment to let everyone who's really emotionally invested in these cases being factual stop screaming. Everybody good? Okay, moving on. So, between the book and the movie, and a whole lot of caterwauling from religious conservatives related to both... Ouija boards became seen as open portals to hell pretty much overnight. Other writers and movie makers picked up on the trend, people started making up and sharing scary stories featuring the board, and the idea became cemented in pop culture very quickly. After being acquired by Hasbro in 1991, Ouija boards continued to sell, despite protests from various religious groups, only now they weren't just for fun. Oh no, now they were firmly on the spooky side, something for kids and adults alike to scare themselves with. Still a party game, but more for urban legend purposes than foretelling the future. And there were plenty of legends that grew up around the board over the next few decades. The funny thing is, most of these legends, most of these things that give us the things we think we know about Ouija boards, came from media either owned, funded, or influenced by Christian sources. Let me explain. You've got shows like A Haunting and the various ghost hunting franchises, and who do most of them cite as the ultimate authority on demons and demonic hauntings? Ding, ding, ding! Ed and Lorraine Warren. This is partly me putting up pushpins and red yarn on the wall and partly just paying attention to content. Either way, so much of the rhetoric put forward in these shows comes from the Warrens, or people influenced by their work over the course of the Satanic Panic. And, if you don't know, you should, but the Warrens were full of shit. Far more interested in advancing their own brand and selling books than they were in discovering truth or actually, you know, helping people. Don't let the movies fool you. And when I say so much of the rhetoric, I mean, like, almost all of it. Think about it. Any amount of researching or dabbling in the occult in these shows leads to disaster, every time. 
Witchcraft is always satanic, even when it's clearly presented as Wicca. Any time a witch has ever lived somewhere, the house is left cursed. There's a rush to call anything remotely negative a demonic haunting. And what always saves the day? Christian faith. Always a priest or a prayer circle. On rare occasions, we'll see other faiths make an appearance, but it's almost always a Bible and a cross and one of a handful of prayers or psalms that drive the bad spirits away. The narrative being laid down in these shows is that ghosts and magic and the occult are so dangerous that even tangentially involving them in your life will lead to emotional, physical, and spiritual ruin, and that only the divine cleansing power of faith can save you from the demons you will inevitably invite into your home. And Ouija boards make frequent appearances in these tales as a convenient doorway through which the supposed demons can enter. As recently as 2011, religious conservative douchebag Pat Robertson of the 700 Club insisted that Ouija boards are evil. And I quote, Demons can control a Ouija board, and when you begin to deal with the occult, that's who you're dealing with. You're not dealing with Jesus, you're not dealing with God, you're dealing with the demonic. Because, you know, there's only ever those two options. I'll grant you that the rules as we know them, have come into existence over time and through use and experimentation. And, of course, the modern witchcraft community has created its own variations of those rules and its own rituals surrounding the board. This is normal. However, because of the media saturation of these dramatized fictional events featuring Ouija boards, a lot of what we, as witches, internalize and then include in our community lore is coming from this propagandized religious rhetoric disguised as spooky TV entertainment. Or, in one or two particular cases, from viral videos or internet creepypastas created by artists and writers. Or charlatans. Speaking of charlatans, this seems like a great time to talk about Zozo. Yeah, I'm sure some of you have been waiting for this. Hope you're not terribly invested in this one either, or you're about to be very mad at me. Zozo is not real. The entire story was created by a guy named Darren Evans on a message board back in 2009. It went viral on the internet with hundreds of people jumping in to claim they'd encountered the same spirit, specious at best, and then it got somehow legitimized in the minds of the public when it was featured on Ghost Adventures in 2014. However, it's important to note that Darren Evans has changed his story on the whole Zozo matter on multiple occasions. It seems like every time he talks or writes about it, there are new details or the plot differs slightly, almost like he's making it up as he goes along. Hmm. He also, rather ironically, cites a case in Le Dictionnaire Infernal as evidence for the existence and origin of this particular entity. And anyone who takes five minutes to find a translated copy of the Infernal Dictionary will 
quickly discover that the story in question is that of a young girl who was found to have faked being possessed, with a spirit she called Zozo being one of the alleged entities involved. Plenty of sites and accounts, including the Ghost Adventures show, cite this as evidence for Zozo's existence predating Evan's claims. But yeah, it's completely fake. To cite another modern ghost story, it's like the Dybbuk box. It's a fictional story that went viral to the point where people stopped being able to tell the difference between reality and creepypasta. According to at least one medium that I've spoken to, the spirit world has picked up on this. So there are spirits who will troll people using Ouija boards by making it spell out Z-O-Z-O just to scare people. I guess even dead people need a little entertainment. And that's not even mentioning the possibility that, you know, a living person participating in the session might be manipulating the movement of the planchette, either consciously or unconsciously. Also, speaking of unconscious planchette movement, before somebody jumps on this and gets mad, there is scientific evidence to back this up. It's called the idiomotor phenomenon, or the idiomotor response. Basically, what it is is a reflexive, automatic, or unconscious movement in response to a thought, idea, or external visual stimulus. These are usually very small movements that the person might not even be aware of making, but they can bring about an expected or anticipated result. This phenomenon has been observed in activities like table tipping, dowsing, pendulum divination, and, yep, Ouija board sessions. Basically, if you're sitting around a table and you're all touching the planchette and you expect something to happen, you might unconsciously push the planchette a little. And other people at the table might push as well, especially once it starts to move, which makes continued movement easier. Studies have been done where participants were asking questions to which they knew the answers, like how many people are in the room, and the board ostensibly answered with the correct information. But when the participants asked questions to which they didn't know the answers, they either got non-answers or gibberish. Similarly, when participants were blindfolded and couldn't see the board or the planchette, the results were incorrect or nonsensical. So there is a case to be made for the idiomotor response or unconscious participation being at least part of what drives Ouija boards. That being said, there are literally thousands of anecdotes floating around on the internet about Ouija board sessions that have revealed hidden information that none of the participants knew about or predicted something that later happened. It's difficult to verify these stories, but the idea certainly exists in the world, and I'm prepared to believe that there are enough true experiences to support it. But it still doesn't mean that Ouija boards can summon anything or become portals. If we're talking magical mechanics for a minute, you're basically talking through a tin can on a string, or at best, picking up a party line and talking to who's ever available. For my younger listeners, a party line is a thing from the days of landline phones, where multiple households would sometimes share a single phone line. 
Sometimes you'd pick up the phone and hear your neighbors talking, or people from multiple households would all get on the line to chat. It was like a permanently open conference call. If somebody called the number, the phone would ring at every house that had a connection to the party line, and you just had to hope that the person you wanted to talk to would pick up. Spirit communication through Ouija boards is a bit like that. Before we wrap things up, I want to say a quick word about modern mythology. We live in the information age. Everything moves a hundred times faster than it did when I was a kid, including the stories we tell. Because information that circulates on the internet doesn't always come with disclaimers or sources or convenient fiction and nonfiction labels, it can be hard to tell when someone is relating an actual experience versus telling the internet version of a campfire tale. And, as we've seen, the more popular something becomes, the less likely people are to question the narrative or fact-check the details. Naturally, this affects the witchcraft community as well. Every day we see rumors and memes and videos and infographics and so on circulating in the community without sources, sometimes even without context. And many of us just don't think to fact-check or verify things. Trey Dorn talked about this not too long ago on BS Free Witchcraft, the whole hexing the moon thing that went around on TikTok. That was modern mythology. This was literally a created story that had nothing to do with anything that was actually happening. But because we've been preconditioned to believe things that provoke an emotional reaction or that play into our existing perspectives and prejudices, a lot of witches just believed it. And we do that. We do it a lot. And because misinformation is often cloaked as story or as an outwardly appealing narrative, it will almost always spread faster than fact or any attempt at correction which is why we keep having the same argument year after year around the spring and winter solstices. You know the one I mean. And yes, someday I will be delivering a full-length rant on the topic. I have sources. And it's not like the correct information isn't out there, or that is difficult to find. Well, SEO and paid advertising being what they are, sometimes you do need to refine your search terms or dig a little deeper, but still, like I keep saying, bare minimum, five-minute Google search. We can find the origins of these rumors and memes. We can find the sources being cited and read them for ourselves. We can find the mundane history behind magical traditions. And we should. Modern mythology influences how we see reality, but we have to take care that we don't let it supersede reality. Or that good old-fashioned common sense. I know that part of the draw with Ouija boards is this whole forbidden aspect. We like to play with ostensibly dangerous things. We like to test the limits of safety. It's human nature. And for some of us, hearing that the board doesn't actually summon demons or open portals 
probably makes them just a little less interesting. But that doesn't mean they're not useful. They're still a fun party game, and you can still try and talk to spirits with them. You can even put up protections or make it part of a magical ritual if that's what you want. All good. All valid. Just know that you're not actually dialing up the hotline to hell every time you put a finger on that planchette. I'll leave you with the words of the late, great Terry Pratchett. It's still magic, even if you know how it works. So, that does it for this month's episode. And I'm giving myself permission to take a little bit of time off, because September and October absolutely kicked my ass. I still have an episode planned for December, but I may choose to skip the winter holiday bonus this year, and the regular episode might be a little bit late. It remains to be seen. Either way, I am one tired witch. This is the end of a marathon recording day for me, <laughs> and I really appreciate the people who have taken the time to reach out with reviews or positive comments or encouragement over the past couple of months, like more than usual. I, I always appreciate the love, but this time I really, really needed it. So thank you, my darlings, for all your support. I love you. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts because it makes your hostess happy. Check out my Patreon to find out how you can support the podcast and get fun bonus episodes and materials. Visit my WordPress shop if you'd like to buy some books. And show some love to our episode sponsors and all the other fabulous shows on the Nerd and Tie podcast network. You can see what's new and find an invitation to join our Discord at nerdandtie.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Brina Garen, reminding you to stay safe, get vaxxed if you can, and keep those common sense superpowers strong. Hex Positive is a proud member of the Nerd and Tie Podcast Network. Check out everything they have to offer, including our sibling podcast, BS Free Witchcraft, over at nerdandtie.com. Intro and outro music by Kevin McLeod. For all the latest updates, follow at hex underscore podcast on Twitter. You can also follow me at at Brina Garen on Twitter and Instagram. For more information on my books, you can check out my WordPress and my Amazon author page. And if you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash Stay safe, wash your hands, and remember, always practice safe hacks.